Hey folks, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is a bit of an emergency episode. Bryce and I felt the need to chime in and discuss uh, f- some of the topics going on with regard to coronavirus, particularly as it starts to really take hold in our community and um, you know what we're about to see over the next week, month, etc. is unlike anything any of us have really ever experienced. And um, you know, we had some debate as to whether or not to keep the, the regular podcast going. I'm going to keep regular episodes, at least ones we've already recorded, going. But um, Bryce and I wanted to, to um, get our thoughts down, share them with you, and if, and if they can bring some clarity to this challenging time, that's our intent. So uh, anyway, turn it over to Bryce for a special episode of Incentives and Instincts. Okay, so we are uh, here today. Well, we're not really here. Well, I'm here. Bryce isn't here. But anyway, we're here today with Bryce Ward for a, an emergency coronavirus edition of uh, of Incentives and Instincts. Bryce, how are you holding up? Oh, I you know, I guess okay. I mean, it's supposed to be spring break, right? So I guess I'm, it doesn't feel that different, uh, at least not yet. But uh, the world's collapsing everywhere else, you know. But if I look out my window, it looks like Montana in March. It is a beautiful day here in western Montana. The sun is out. We're recording this on Monday the 16th. And, um, yeah, it's just kind of strange times. Somebody described this, and I don't know if it was on Twitter or something, but sort of like the world closing around you. You know, you hear about it in the United States. You hear about it maybe in your state. And then all of a sudden for us, like my family, it became really real Saturday night. Um, when we got notice that Clay Christian, the commissioner of higher education here in the state of Montana, had tested positive. And then we thought about all the sort of cascading interactions that stemmed from his positive test, um, my wife included. She um, saw him, um, albeit quite briefly, in the president's office on at some day last week. So yeah, we're kind of working through those scenarios. The public schools here have been closed at least through March 27th. I mean, this is all something that the listener probably knows at this point. But um, I think what we'd like to first talk about, we sort of felt like we had to weigh in on this topic. Um, and I want what's been sort of what I've been trying to wrap my mind around is what to expect. I mean, this this notion of exponential growth is not something that I think uh, we are intuitively capable of understanding. Would you agree with that, Bryce? Uh, yeah, for most people. Um, so m- several weeks ago now, uh, Tyler Cowen, who's an economist at George Mason, uh, wrote an article in Bloomberg basically saying, you know, several weeks ago there were two types of people. There, there were people who naturally think in exponentials, and those are kind of, uh, engineers, economists, finance people, uh, and then everybody else. And so uh, the fear of this has been widespread uh, in at least economic circles for almost two months now. Uh, but yeah, most people don't think in exponentials. And it's not that this goes on exponentially forever. Ultimately, uh, enough people get sick and hopefully get immune that it slows down naturally. But uh, when you're in the early exponential phase, it's things change very, very rapidly. And, you know, what I saw somebody said on Twitter is, uh, you know, 
yesterday's what, what seemed like an overreaction yesterday feels prudent today and will be seem like a half measure tomorrow. And that's basically where we're at, right? As things change very quickly uh, because the epidemic grows up in exponentially and you're like, oh, wow, we really should be doing a whole lot more. Uh, and we probably should have been doing a whole lot more three weeks ago. And so the biggest thing I think that individuals could do at this point is, is take the social distancing thing seriously. And, and you know, we're doing that here. I, I'm working from a home office. The kids are home from school. We're sort of confining ourselves to the house other than short excursions out, uh, outside. Um, and Bryce is, I mean, we're not in the studio. Bryce is remote and doing a similar thing. The social distancing thing is is kind of the one of the key tools we have to um, – do this thing called flattening the curve. That's a that's an expression that I think a lot of people have heard or are hearing. There's a lot of local businesses uh, adapting their um, the ways they're serving their pop popular customers in order to uh, flatten the curve. What does flattening the curve mean, Bryce? Um. Okay. So the the, the arithmetic of epidemic is pretty straightforward. Basically, the number of people who are infected today equals the number of people who were infected yesterday times this factor. And that factor basically has two variables, the number of people that the per- an infected person comes in contact with and the probability of each contact resulting in, in infection. Right? So for the more mathematically inclined, N today equals N yesterday times one plus contacts times probability of infection. And so if we knew who everybody who was sick, right? If like, if the virus turned everybody blue, it'd be really easy. We would just say, Oh, you're blue. You go isolate yourself. Um, But we don't know the virus spreads silently and frequently asymptomatically. Um, And so as long as, the number of contacts that each sick person has times the probability of getting infected is positive, uh, we'll keep growing and we'll keep growing at an exponential rate. Now, the problem with that is we don't have a lot of capacity in the healthcare system to take care of an exponential number of people getting sick. Right. And so the idea is you know, so if you just imagine kind of essentially the way epidemics work is it looks like a bell curve. And, you know, right now we're we're on the upward slope, you know, of the bell curve that's, you know, time is what's on the horizontal axis and that kind of exponential thing. And eventually it'll slow down and peak out and then go back down. But at, at some point that exponential growth puts you above, if you imagine a different horizontal line, which is the capacity of the healthcare system the number of people who need treatment will exceed the capacity in the healthcare system. And that's when things go haywire. That's what happened in Wuhan. That's what's happening currently in Italy. Um, it's close to being it happening in Seattle, at least based on what I've read. Um, and so when you exceed the capacity of the healthcare system, the, the consequences for everyone go up, both if you have the virus well, now you may not be able to get treatment. But even if you don't have the virus, but you have some other need to access the healthcare system, uh, the capacity to treat you will also be strained. And so, you know, this is the imperative of flatten the curve. Even if we don't end up reducing the number of people who get infected at all, uh, 
the goal is to actually spread it out so that we don't end up overtaxing the healthcare system and turning, uh, increasing the mortality rate associated with not just the virus, but, you know, in society writ large because of the lack of capacity in the healthcare system. Yeah, let's get specific on this capacity issue in, in, in the healthcare space, because we're, we're not just talking about testing, we're talking about um, treatments for the, um, for the virus itself, we're talking about personnel, and, you know, that gets really interesting, because as we close um, schools and things like that, I mean, a lot of the parents of children in schools that are closed are workers in the healthcare space. So this thing sort of has a lot of, the healthcare system capacity has a lot of dimensions to it, right? It does. And in some states, recognizing that, they're keeping the schools open, at least in some skeletal form, but only for people uh, who are essential workers. Um, I think Minnesota's doing that. Um, so yeah, there needs to be some accommodation, uh, of the fact that if we tell everybody else to isolate and we close schools and do all that kind of stuff, um, there are spillover effects into the healthcare system because healthcare workers also have kids or other people that they need to care for. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so we're going to have to figure out how to manage the capacity in our healthcare system. Uh, from the, okay, you have a life outside of healthcare, but what we've seen in at least other places is, you know, it's the healthcare workers themselves are working nonstop. They're not getting lots of rest. They're getting infected. Um, And so we have to also work to make sure that our healthcare workers are healthy themselves. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, that's that's part of our our collective task uh, as this ramps up is to make sure that our healthcare system continues to operate and we don't basically burn through our healthcare capacity in ways that we're going to have to suffer long term consequences for because we've damaged the overall capacity of the healthcare system through this process. Right. And that, that notion of collective action is not something that um, we as a society have a tradition of performing well at. Um, I think this community, Missoula, that we live in is is particularly um, spirited in, in that sense, just, just looking at what some of the local businesses are doing and whatnot. Um, but in terms of the healthcare system, yeah. I mean, isolating yourself and doing whatever you can to keep you and those around you healthy is really a key um, public service in a way. And I think we have to think of it that way. Yeah, the joke going around online is that you get to be a hero for sitting at home and watching Netflix. Uh, but what you're doing is heroic, right? You're Look, some of us want to be at home watching Netflix regardless, but for a lot of people, you know, I was supposed to be on a spring break trip right now. I, I you know, people are canceling weddings. People are canceling family get togethers. People are not seeing their elderly parents in the ways that they normally do. You know, there, there are sacrifices that we're all making, uh, it, or at least not, not all of us, many of us are making in an attempt to try and help flatten the curve. And so if you're doing something to flatten the curve, 
you're contributing to that process, not going out, washing your hands, doing all of the things that we've been told to do, then, you know, feel good. You're, you're, you're the model citizen right now. And we should be holding up you as an ideal and praising you for your efforts, uh, as trivial as they may seem, uh, on the surface. So I've been doing some reading about, you know, the pattern of, of the spread that this, this virus is taking in other places. I mean, we can learn lessons from Wuhan. We can learn lessons from Italy. We can learn lessons from Washington State. Uh, here we are, Monday the 16th. This will release probably either Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday morning. It's, it's unclear what the world looks like then. Um, but, you know, Bryce, from your vantage point, what, what, what do we have to expect what, what is it going to look like in Western Montana in the next uh, few days, week, et cetera? Well, so I think we can be fairly certain that there will be nothing approaching normality for many weeks and likely a few months. Uh, hopefully I'm wrong, but... Uh, you know, kind of the most optimistic scenarios seem to be like, I mean, you know, so yeah, the CDC guidance basically says no gatherings above 50 people for eight weeks. Um, so that's not an unreasonable time frame to think that, yeah, things probably won't go back to looking anywhere close to normal from a public gathering perspective for at least that long, because it takes a long time for even if we shut everything down and do everything we're supposed to do, um, that will bend the curve. We have ample evidence from everywhere that, uh, so from, you know, I've seen papers now in China and in Italy with this particular virus showing that the earlier you engage in extreme social distancing, the flatter your curve looks, the fewer people that get infected. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if we do that, it will flatten the curve. But right now, there's a lot of disease already in the community. Um, you know, we like to hide behind the fact that we didn't have any official cases in Montana uh, until Saturday, Friday. I think it was Friday yeah. that they were announced. Yeah. You know, uh, and, but it's probably been here for several weeks, um, kind of spreading silently. And that's, you know, I mean, that was, you know, so we're basically, we're just a, so it, when it got to it got to Washington in January, uh, it kind of spikes up in Washington in late February. So you know, yeah, look at Seattle, and add several weeks, and that's probably where we, we're going to be. Uh, you know, hopefully we got enough warning. We start engaging in social distancing, so we won't see it spike as bad. But the short version is is that you know expect to be at home with your kids for a while. Yeah, and, and what um, I mean, how how do we how does our level of preparedness compare to, you know, what's happening in Italy right now? Because I've heard some people say like, oh yeah, we're just a couple of weeks behind Italy, and you look at Italy, and it, it's like, wow, they're kind of in total national lockdown. Yeah, it's tough to say, right? So our data is so poor that it's hard to actually compare. Um, and what, what, explain why it's poor. So, okay. So in the United States, we just haven't been testing anybody. Right. Um, 
So to the extent that we do test people, uh, we're finding cases. We're not measuring the true burden of how many people are actually out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I keep wondering, and finally somebody put this in the Wall Street Journal this morning, uh, if we aren't going to test that many people, why don't we just test randomly? Uh, we should just, what's, what's, what are the odds? What's the share? What are the share of people? And maybe we just don't have enough tests given that it's still probably at a relatively low level to actually even detect it. But as it ramps up and testing every sick person seems less useful, I hope that we move to just testing randomly to see where we're at. Uh, because whether you're, if you're sick, you're sick. Um, and you should be isolating yourself. It doesn't matter if you have the flu or if you have coronavirus, um, like isolate yourself. So I don't, I mean, it's, it's interesting from a numbers perspective to know the true number, but, um, but back to the question. So if you just put us on a curve with Italy, we're 11 days behind in terms of our confirmed number of cases, uh, but it's hard to say, given the differences in testing regimes across countries, what does that tell us? Um, because, you know, and I've seen people say, well, let's not worry about tests. Let's look at deaths because deaths are more likely to be accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even there, um, you know, we won't really know the overall mortality burden of this disease for years or at least a year and a half until we get the official statistics and we're able to analyze because a lot of people who may have actually died from COVID-19 may currently be listed as death from pneumonia or death from the flu. Sure. Um, So, you know, our, 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 our capacity to measure accurately right now is very limited. And so while it's useful to look at Italy and say, well, we should be concerned that that's where we're headed based on the fact that our actually confirmed number of cases look like we're literally just following that line. Um, it's in, you know, I've seen lots of people do a lot of adjustments, like, you know, so some people are like, well, we should put it on a per capita basis, which of course makes sense in which case, you know, but we should, and then, then it's like, well, the United States is so big. Maybe we should just be looking at it per capita basis by state. Um, and when you start doing that, you do see there's, there's still massive variation. That's one of the things that the public health epidemiology people are, are starting, are, you know, are wondering about, which is why is it get so bad in some places and not in others? And, um, some of that may be policy, social distancing. Uh, some of that may be linked to what they call super spreaders or super spreader events like this, uh, biogen conference in, uh, Boston, that basically is the source of almost every case in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so th- there's a lot we just, and I, I meant to actually put that back at the beginning. We should be very clear. We're learning more every day, but we still don't know a whole lot. And so a lot of our decisions are based on analyses, which are highly uncertain. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty here. So, you know, when I, where we're talking about what do we think is going to happen or what might happen with the economy, um, the, 
the 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 confidence interval, the error band, is much much larger than one normally has when having these types of conversations. Um, so hopefully the listeners keep in mind that there's just a lot we don't know, and there's a lot of things that we don't know how they're going to interact. Um, and so we're doing the best we can with a limited amount of data that has a number of flaws. But what we do have, uh, you know, just from the real consequences that we can see, which is healthcare systems getting overburdened and large societies literally shutting down, um, those alone are enough to tell us that this is something serious and we should be paying a lot of attention to it. Okay. <clears throat> so let's shift gears a little bit for the second half of, of our conversation time here, Bryce. And, uh, you know, it feels like when I pull up the headlines, it's either a, a really scary story about the spread of the virus or a really scary story about what's happening in the markets. Um, obviously, if you're paying attention to the stock market in any way, it's been in a, in a massive sell-off sort of in the last uh, week to 10 days. Um, what's happening in the markets? Why all of a sudden a huge sell-off in the stock market when, when something like this happens? Well, we're hitting the, basically hitting the emergency stop on a large part of the economy uh, and the real economy, right? And uh, as former guests of this podcast uh, has said, uh, we're in a situation where we've, we've, we've paused the real economy but the financial side of the economy, it keeps going. Right. And so let's just be specific there. So we've paused it in terms of like people aren't going out. They're not doing vacations. They're, they're not consuming in the way they traditionally consume. In fact, at a fraction of that level, yet those businesses still have loans to pay off and the financial markets have to keep sort of pressing on. It's harder, it's harder to press pause on those institutions and mechanisms. That's right. And so, you know, so essentially you have – a bunch of people who are being told not to go to work. And in some cases, they're still getting paid. But in many cases, they're not getting paid. Or if they're getting paid right now, they may not be getting paid in the near future. And so households, and, you know, I've been looking at some of the consumption data, you know, a mass majority of a household's budget is hard to press stop on. Yeah, I've got you know, if you just go through it and you go, okay, well, I've got rent or a mortgage. Those still have to get paid. I've got uh, all the insurance uh, that I have to pay for my car, my house, uh, my health insurance. Well, those I still got to pay. Uh, I've still got to eat. Uh, and, you know, you kind of just go through the, you know, I've still got to pay my utility bill and all that kind of stuff. And so while there are parts that we can imagine are, you know, going to, you can cut back on households still need a certain amount of money to kind of keep afloat. And as we talked about on the material insecurity pod, only about half of households have a rainy day fund that can support them through a prolonged period of no income. And so, you know, there's a, a constraint in that, you still have obligations, but you may not have money coming in. And so we have to figure out how to bridge that constraint so that everything doesn't fall apart. And, you know, for you individually, but when it falls apart for you individually or for a firm, um, 
that's going to ripple through the economy. And so from a macroeconomic policy standpoint, the, the goal is to say, look, we, from a public health perspective, uh, we, we want a recession. We want people to not go out. We want people to stay home. We don't want them spending a bunch of money uh, in certain places. And so we know we need a certain amount of an economic slowdown. That's inevitable. Um, the, the, then, so then the challenge is, is, okay, well, unlike most recessions, so like, you know, think of the Great Recession. Right, right. You're talking about ways to stimulate the economy now, right? Like, yeah, so well, I'm, we're trying to, what, the source of the recession is different. Right. right. But now we're in the situation where like the traditional stimulus measures are things we don't want to do because they get people, they get people out spending money consuming and we don't want them to do that, at least through, through a lot of the traditional mechanisms. Yeah. So there's, this is a different kind of recession. So it requires a different kind of response. So there are some overlap. So some of the things will look similar, but some of the things are going to be different. Right. So in most recessions, or at least most recent recessions, the recession was driven by an imbalance in the economy, right? So a housing bubble, right? We had too many resources dedicated to building houses and financing houses and all that kind of stuff. And it turned out that the economy couldn't sustain that. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, the bubble burst. And so we have to go through a painful process of shifting the economy to where it should have been. And that's where the recession comes from. And in that case, a lot of what you're trying to do is really just a demand side issue. Um, put money into people's hands, get them out there spending and so that it doesn't spread, yada, yada, yada. In this case, there's going to be some of that. But for the most part, the issue isn't that the economy was fundamentally imbalanced. It's that we literally just said stop to large sections of the economy. And what we want to have happen is once people are said, we tell people, all right, get back to it. We want to have as little permanent damage to the productive capacity as we possibly can, right? So one part of our economic response is we want to contain the damage to our productive capacity. And the simplest way to think about that is if you were a firm that was fine and successful, we don't want you to have to lay off all your workers. Right, right. Right? We want your firm to basically tell those workers, all right, here you go. Um, here's some form of paid leave or enhanced unemployment insurance or something that allows you basically to be uh, essentially temporarily sent home with some sort of income support. You know, maybe not your full salary, but enough to kind of cover those things that we talked about earlier. Um, and so that when it's time comes, the firm says, all right, come back to work, everything, you know, you basically just flip the switch and as quickly as possible, there, it's not going to just be a switch. Um, you know, that firm and all the other firms go back to where they were. All right. So the first goal is we got to protect the productive capacity of the economy in areas where we've imposed slowdowns. Um, but there's also is a demand phenomenon, kind of like a more normal recession, right? right. Which is 
you know, if people don't have money, they don't spend money. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's other parts of the economy where you can continue to spend money, um, even if you're engaged in social distancing. And we don't want you to stop spending that money because you don't have any money, you don't have a job, et cetera. Um, you know, like we don't want you basically to say, okay, well, I can't pay my rent or I can't, uh, you know, buy any food or buy as much food or whatever it is, you know, we want that demand side to still be there. So there's going to be a lot of attempts to, uh, you know, also stimulate demand. And so, you know, in, in jargon terms, you know, we want to provide liquidity to business, right? We want them to be able to access money either through a loan, a low interest loan, or through some sort of grant um, or tax credit or something. Yeah, let's actually, I'm sorry to interrupt there, Bryce, but let's actually go through and, I I don't necessarily want this to be a policy critique, but let's help people understand um, what the governments are doing. You know, so so you hear the, the, the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates. So that that's to address liquidity, like you just mentioned, to, to make access to capital easier at lower interest rates. What are some of the other uh, things that we're seeing? So what are some of the other policy ideas we're seeing rolled out right now? And, and, and how do you kind of assess what their effectiveness might be? Okay, so the Federal Reserve is doing several things. So A, it just kind of lowered interest rates, but it also is doing a bunch of other things to kind of provide liquidity to financial institutions and hopefully eventually to state and local governments. Um, The idea being make it easy for you to access money at very low interest rates so that you can then pass that money on to other people who need to borrow it at very low interest rates. Adding liquidity Um, to the system overall. Adding a bunch of liquidity to the system so that liquidity constraints, i.e. it's hard to borrow money, at an interest rate that I can afford to pay back um, isn't a barrier to preserving the productive capacity and demand. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now the fed has, I won't say has done everything it can do, but what it did yesterday by dropping the interest rate almost to zero and doing a bunch of asset purchases, it's done most of what it's going to be able to do probably. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, we are sort of, we have been at or near the limit of what the Fed, you know, within the range of what the Fed can do as far as interest rates go. We've been operating in a in a historically low interest rate environment, although they ticked up recently. Um, but yeah, so we're already sort of at the low end of, of the the range of things the Fed can do with interest rates. Yeah, so you know, there's uh, there's still things that they can do to continue to provide liquidity and terms of asset purchases and quantitative easing and some things like that. But, you know, the general joke or comment yesterday was they, they pulled out their bazooka yesterday and they fired it. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there are things I'm sure that they can do, but essentially what they've said is they've turned it over to Congress and said, it's time for fiscal policy. Yeah. And so what is the fiscal response? It could take several forms, but you know, the basic issue is the one that we talked about a minute ago, which is households and firms have certain obligations that they must continue to meet uh, 
other or they go under or they pull back on demand or whatever it is in ways that can make it much harder for us. You know, what we want, the dream scenario at this point is, look, we we shut everything down for a couple months and we get the viral part, the public health piece to a manageable level. Um, and then we turn the economy back on and we have what's called a V-shaped re- recession. It goes down, it pops right back up, right. and we go back on our life. But to the extent that businesses go out of business, uh, households go under, um, that's when things can spiral out of control in a lot of ways, right? Because if businesses are going bankrupt, well, that puts strain on the financial sector. And that, you know, so it just kind of it ripples into more areas. And so the fiscal policy response, and, and this is pretty widespread agreement uh, in the economics community, is, well, let's make sure that those liquidity constraints don't bind firms or households um, and that we keep people from going under as much as possible, people and businesses from going under as much as possible. And so, okay, well, the first package included at least partial. Let's provide more paid sick leave. Um, and let's pay for that with the federal government. Right? Mm-hmm. And again, it's, the federal government is, we have a large debt and deficit, um, but that's basically irrelevant right now uh, because interest rates are so absurdly low. Um, the federal government can borrow and essentially the lenders are paying them to borrow because uh, the real interest rate is negative. And so we shouldn't worry about deficits at all right now. We should be quite willing to go and say, you know what, let's make sure that we fill the gap and so that we get back on track as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an important ripple. So like all this money coming out of the stock market is doing what's called a flight to quality in general. And part of, you know, the flight to quality is, is taking money from riskier assets and putting it in what are perceived to be lower risk assets, i.e. bonds, i.e. U.S. Treasury bonds. So with money flowing into U.S. Treasury bonds, that gives us an opportunity at the federal level to borrow really cheaply. Exactly. And, you know, let's also take advantage of it to make plans for whatever infrastructure investments we want to make, because this is a screaming deal. Are you Uh, saying it's going to be finally infrastructure week? I am somewhat skeptical of that proposition. I, I, I I am too, but we, we really should try and take advantage. Might as well. Like, Hey, like in in inflation adjusted terms, we're going to pay back less than we borrowed. Um, that, that deal does not come along very often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the point is, is that, you know, you, you do paid sick leave, you do, um, so in Ohio, uh, Governor DeWine announced that they're making it much easier for people to get unemployment insurance. Um, so, you know, you kind of figure out ways to ideally keep people attached to their jobs. And, you know, so a guy named Tim Bardick, who works at the Upjohn Institute, you know, he put out his proposal over the weekend, basically saying, you know, we should make a lot of these things, these tax credits and you know, things uh, that we're offering to firms, you know, we should make them contingent on keeping your workers technically employed yeah. uh, or at least attached to you so that, you know, you have an incentive not to just shut down or whatever it is. Cause we, you know, we want you to quote, it's called labor. We want you to hoard your labor. We want you to say, look, I, we've got a great team. 
let's keep it together however we can. And we want to make it easy for firms to do that. Uh, and we want to make it easy for us to put money into households' hands so that they also don't go under. Um, and so, you know, like we said, we keep it going. And however you do it, uh, whether it's through, uh, you know, so different people have different proposals for different, basically some form of temporary basic income, uh, whether you do it through unemployment insurance and paid sick leave, uh, the point is, is to the extent possible, we want to keep people afloat because like I said, this isn't an imbalance issue. At least it's not yet an imbalance issue. It's a, we hit the brakes on the economy issue and anything we can do to kind of keep the economy in, you know, as healthy as it is in this underlying condition uh, will get us back on track quicker because the, 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 the scary scenario is we hit the brakes on the economy and we're going to crash into a tree um, and we're going to have to kind of do a lot of rebuilding over a lot of years. And we just did that uh, 10 years ago. So that seems like maybe a useful intuition for folks and, and you got to sort of critique this intuition. But as you were saying, you know, traditional, um, I shouldn't say traditional, whatever, other recessions have been reflective of imbalances, right? So then you come up with a policy intervention to, to address the imbalance. In this case, we've got a recession that's essentially causing a pause on the demand side. So should we be sort of looking for policies that mirror the pause effect on the, other, on the supply side? I mean, is that a way to sort of evaluate the uh, potential efficacy of a policy? Well, yeah. I mean, so ideally we would just have, we would have already figured out because we would, were aware that this could happen and we were smart foresighted people. And we would said, we would have designed the pause button. We would say, oh, these are the essential services. Right. We don't want to press pause on those. Those go ahead. In fact, we want to shift resources into those sectors temporarily. Right. Uh, we want to take some of the idle resources elsewhere. We want to reposition them into the essential sectors and we want to keep that thing going. But if you're in the rest of the economy, we just want to hit the pause button um, and we would know, okay, well, we're pausing all this stuff. And you know, we wouldn't have this imbalance between the financial sector and the real economy sector. We would just press pause on it all together. And then we would just press unpause. And it would all start moving again. And so you're seeing that some people are arguing, you know, saying, well, let's not do as much on the giveaway the money stuff. Let's press pause on the finance stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, let's make it so you don't have to pay your mortgage for three months. Um, and literally just pause. We're just going to basically make these three months disappear. And in June, you'll start paying again. And it's not like you're accrued three months that you're going to have to pay back. It's not like it's just like a loan. We're just basically saying, oh, it's as if these three months just magically we snapped our fingers and they disappeared. Right. Just press pause. Um, so some people are advocating that route. Some people are saying that's too complicated. We should just give people money. And so that's where the debate is, is, you know, we know where the imbalance is in the economy at the aggregate high level, right? Which is these things are no longer operating and therefore money isn't flowing into them and money isn't then flowing through the rest of the economy from that part of the world. Um, but those things 
continue to have obligations, those households, those firms um, that they can't press pause on. And so we have to figure out either do we pause the obligation or do we give money so that you can continue to meet the obligation or some what combination of that do we want to do? But that's basically the fight that we're going to have. And, and, and then, of course, how much do you have to give? And obviously, some basic amount uh, will be good enough for some people, will be more than enough for others, but not enough for some. And that's, you know, the other tricky part about targeting this is, you know, let's say we say, okay, we're going to give everybody a thousand dollars. You know, well, depending on what the level of your current obligations are and what kind of rainy day fund you have, that may be a windfall that may be just enough or that may be not enough. And so we're going to have to deal with the fallout from whatever that is. Yeah. And we're going to have to sort of figure it out fast because the time is now. Yeah, and we're going to keep making mistakes. Uh, this is not a time to be uh, nitpicky about whether or not everything was perfectly efficient right? Uh, or worked perfectly well. Um, you know, this is a, this is a, let's try and do good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, do better than uh, what would have happened. As long as we're positive, um, you know, this isn't normal times where it's like, we got to work hard and find the most efficient, no waste at all solution. Um, we don't have time for that. Uh, we have to figure out the, okay, this is helpful or not. That's the level at what you're trying to evaluate it. Well, hopefully our leaders at the congressional level, at the local level, will have the spirit of trying to rapidly experiment with solutions and not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, But we'll see. I mean, this is unfolding in real time. Uh, Bryce, we're coming up at the end of our time together. And I think we're sort of, since we're both working from home with our children in the mix, I'm sort of approaching the limit of what I consider to be (laughs) responsible parenting, plopping my children in front of a movie so I can uh, have a few minutes of silence in the house and record this uh, what's going on at your house um well it's supposed to be spring break but given that uh i'm quite convinced that this is going to be our routine for a while uh we have established a, a a kind of a homeschool routine uh which is not very intense relative to real school but we have uh imposed at least some amount of structure and so I think right now, oh, it's now. Now we've moved into lunchtime. So, <laughs> Indeed, uh, we are. Fortunately, uh, I, I'm not hearing a bunch of noise, or at least hopefully you're not hearing a bunch of noise associated with that. Yeah, you're you're a couple steps ahead of us. I mean, I have dreams of um, or aspirations of uh, instituting some policies here: uh, mandatory reading time, mandatory outside time. Outside time seems particularly wise today because it is beautiful, but. Um, Bryce, any, anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure we get on the record? Um, things people should be doing, recommendations? I mean, we're both fully advocating the uh, social distancing policy. Stay at work. I'm sorry, stay at home if you can. Um, stick to the six-foot thing. Break some of these social norms that you're so used to because you know, little things make a big difference right now. Yeah. Uh, so in addition, you know, uh, isolation doesn't have to mean – no communication, continue to reach out to others, uh, take advantage of this opportunity to work on your social skills, uh, social networks, 
um, uh, work on, you know, be productive as to the extent possible. If you, even if you're not working, uh, you know, let's not waste the, you know, this is an opportunity to do a lot of stuff, uh, that you maybe haven't been able to do, or, uh, don't just spend it all wallowing on Twitter, looking at the statistics. Yeah, certainly stay away from Twitter. That's probably a good way to end it. Bryce, thank you. Be safe. Um, you know, this is going to release Wednesday. We might chime in with, with, uh, other commentary as details unfold, but um, yeah, appreciate you uh, freeing up some time and appreciate the listeners sticking with us. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally... If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.